Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. So we have looked at the dispensation of the church age. We have looked at the founding of the church in Matthew 16, 18. We have looked at the church as the bride of Christ. We have looked at the church as the family of God. This morning, we're going to look at the church as the army of God, trained by the grace of God. In spring of 1940, the German army was plowing through France during World War II, even though France had the help of more than 300,000 British troops. Well, finally, the, the Germans surrounded and trapped most of the Allied forces at Dunkirk. You know this story, a town in northern France. Some of you saw the movie a few years back, so you know what happened. But I want you to keep in mind that at the time, no one did. No one knew what was going to happen. And it appeared that the Allied army would either be wiped out or would have to surrender. And at one point, when everything looked hopeless, it is said that a British officer sent the following message condensed into three powerful words. But if not, but if not, it's a message that came straight from the word of God from Daniel chapter three. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, you remember, had built a golden image demanding people to worship it. If they didn't, they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. And then there stood Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faithful servants of God, refusing to bow down to this image that this earthly king had set up. And when confronted, here was his response from Daniel 3. He said, if that is the case... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. But if not, important words to your faith, but if not, what were they saying? Well, the Pentecostals and the Charismatics need to look at this verse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not saying our God is able and he absolutely will deliver us if we just have enough faith because faith is in God. Faith is in a person, not in an outcome. And this is why they were saying, oh, King, our God is able, absolutely 100% more than able He is more than able to deliver us from your hands. But if not, even if he doesn't, even if he's not going to do that in part of his plan, we will not bow down to that evil you bring before us because we serve the living God of heaven. And so on the beach of Dunkirk, the message conveyed that the British would stand defiantly against the tyranny of the Nazis, even if God did not provide a way out. Well, Hitler's forces were mopping up Europe. Great Britain would be next. The Dutch had already surrendered. The Belgians had already surrendered. And there on the coast of France stood the British army, Hitler's troops only a few miles away 
in the hills of France, closing in for the easy kill. Now, the Royal Navy, they they had enough ships to save barely 17,000 men. And the House of Commons was told to brace itself for hard news and hope had failed. But just then, this bizarre fleet of ships appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. I mean, fishing boats, tugboats, lifeboats, sailboats, pleasure boats, even a ferry named Gracie Fields. All boats manned by civilians, ordinary people. Now, this ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,682 men. Amazing. And they returned them to the shores of England. It's one of the most remarkable naval operations in history. In this remarkable rescue, we see a glimpse of the church of Jesus Christ. Because that is, if you want to be truthful, if you want to be honest, that's what we are. We're God's ragtag armada. Flawed people on a rescue mission from God. Paul wrote on this to the church of Corinth. When he told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Now, why did God do this? Why did God choose to work this way? Well, let's look for the purpose statement. Always look for the purpose statement in the word of God. Here it comes. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that. Here it comes. No flesh should glory in his presence. There it is. That no flesh should glory in the presence of God. But do not lose heart, because back in verse 25, Paul told the church, because he said this, he said, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The church of Jesus Christ is an army of ragtag believers in Jesus Christ, commissioned by God for his work on earth. The church of Christ is described many different ways in the New Testament. It's described as a place of love, a place of growth, acceptance, but also it is described as an army, a place where we train and prepare for battle, a place of hard work. There are different seasons in the Christian life, times of training, times of battle, times of being a family, but we need to learn to discern the season. Let us be very clear about what we're talking about, that the church is the army of God. We read in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We live in the world, but the church does not wage war like the world does. Now that is not to say that if Putin and Russia decided to invade Alaska, that I wouldn't send my family to the east and then join the front lines of the battle. I absolutely would, because there's a time to fight and there's a time to defend your home. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Church of Jesus Christ. 
And this isn't even about physically defending yourself. This is about spiritual warfare, which is what we are in, a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war right now. God knows this. Satan knows this. Do you know it, Christian? Do you know it? You can often tell whether or not a Christian understands the spiritual battle that we are in by what they spend their time on, what their focus is, what they value for entertainment. The church does not wage war like the world because the weapons we fight with are not of the world. Notice the word war in verse 3. It's a military word. Paul used it to introduce the subject of spiritual warfare. And the Greek word transliterated is strategy. That's the transliteration. It referred to the tactics a general would use as he led his soldiers into battle. Paul is a general in the Lord's army, and he's saying we don't wage spiritual warfare like earthly people because the battle belongs to the Lord. So we wage spiritual warfare his way. It's his army. It's his people. And the battle that Paul was up against was false teachers that were coming into the church, false apostles, smooth talking men coming into the church with claims of visions. The battle was for the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem that Paul was up against was that men were coming in and they were great speakers, fantastic speakers. If they were alive today, they would be on YouTube. They'd go viral on YouTube or on Rumble. Smooth talkers, but they had a lot of bad doctrine, and they would be after your pocketbook. Paul is saying, in the Lord's army, doctrine matters. What we believe matters. What we teach matters. What we hold to matters. Paul is saying it matters. Because these false teachers plaguing the church then had the same lies that are plaguing the church now. It was intimidating men coming in with dramatic accounts of what God had done in their lives. Men strutting around, bragging about their experiences. And Paul said, we don't battle in the flesh. We battle with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim truth. We proclaim the grace of God. We proclaim his word in humility. Now, Paul made this clear in his first letter to the church at Corinth. Do you remember what he said in chapter 2? Paul said this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to not know anything among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, you don't have to be an expert. You need to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he went on to say, this is Paul with all his education. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. See, this was Paul's battle plan. This was his attitude towards the battle that we are in. And God used this man to change the world. Paul preached Jesus Christ, mighty in God, and it pulled down strongholds. Now, what does Paul have in mind with this, with strongholds in verse 5? Well, casting down arguments in every high thing, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
See, Paul was up against prideful individuals that thought he had nothing to offer. And they despised Paul at that time and his simple message of Jesus Christ crucified. You know, every fortified city had a stronghold, walls that were almost impossible to get through. And Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus Christ has divine power to break through the strongholds of the lies of bad teaching, bad doctrine. It smashes down those walls, he's saying, allowing the truth of Jesus Christ to come in. Paul said, we can pull down those strongholds. We can cast down arguments and what else? Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, what is Paul thinking of? He has in mind those defensive towers in these cities. And he says that the truth of Christ can tear down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Because it is Christ and his word that has the ability to destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thoughts. These are the mental structures that people build up in their minds in order to live in open rebellion against God. See, they don't get there overnight. They build up this thought process and get there. Paul is saying, when people come to saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not because they're clever. It's not because they're smart. It's not because they're intellectually superior. It is because the gospel of Jesus Christ has cut down the high towers in their souls and their minds that were once set against the knowledge of God, and little by little, their lives become transformed in Christ. Or as Paul says, that the knowledge of God is able to bring down every thought into captive obedience to Christ. Because the battle for the truth is in the minds and in the hearts of people. This is why also it matters who you read in, in your daily life and who you're listening to and what you watch in your life, what you watch on that TV, on your phone, on your computer, What you watch and what you listen to matters in your life because garbage in, garbage out, Christians. Take in the truth of Christ. Take in the truth of his word and transformed thinking awaits you, child of God. Longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Howard Hendricks, he used to say, and I agree with these numbers that he came up with, He said that from research and personal experience, I have come to the conclusion that in every church, 16% of the members will never change. I agree with that number. I think he's spot on. And then he went on to say, the tragedy is I see young pastors every day leaving the ministry because of that 16%. They're, They're butting their heads. It's as if they're butting their heads against a brick wall over and over and over again. And what they should be doing is concentrating on the 84% who are ripe for change because that's where the real ministry of the local church takes place. I need this reminder from time to time because I'll tell you what, those 16%, they will burn you out. They'll discourage you. They'll chase you right out of ministry if you let them. But here's why I'm telling you this. It's not about me. The more involved you get in the ministry of this church, any church, the more you serve here, you're going to run into some of these 16%. You're going to run into them. They are thorny, hurting people who have never learned to take up the truth of Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Admonish your brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in God's grace, God's word. But 
I'm here to tell you, don't waste your time on that 16%. Don't let them chase you out of this church to the next church where you're just going to run into another 16% there. That's what happens. People in this valley go from church to church to church. Don't do that. Go around them and work with the 84% who are serious about Jesus Christ and take your joy and your fellowship with them. Because the church of Jesus Christ is in a fight for the truth. The church has always been in this fight. This is God's purpose for his church. See, it was never God's intention for the church to be weak on doctrine, weak on truth. It wasn't like God sitting in heaven going, hey, I got a great idea. Let's have the church be pathetic. Let's have him be weak in doctrine. He wasn't doing that. His church should be strong on truth, powerful, able to hold up to the lies of Satan. Because Peter warns us, we read this all the time, but we don't take this warning in 1 Peter 5, 8, where it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So if the church is an army, what does this look like? What does it look like? Well, to start with, it means we listen to the voice of the commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because in any battle, it's his voice that matters most. Because unless you're listening to his voice above all else in his word, you won't be able to know what steps we're to take next. You won't know the way ahead. You won't know where the army of God is going. Now, in an army, there are delegated leaders, and we're going to be coming back to this in the coming weeks. But for now, let me remind you of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them so do with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And let me just say, my thoughts, my thoughts are consumed with how I can help God's people, you people, to grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm constantly, daily praying for you, moment by moment. I have you in mind, and I am praying for you, Christians. The leadership of this church is solely focused on Jesus Christ, on his word, and what we can do to help you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. Don't be the 16%. Brennan Manning, he was the one that wrote the quote about the greatest single cause of atheism in that song, What If I Stumble. He used to tell how he got the name Brennan while growing up. His best friend's name was Ray. I had a close friend growing up like this. The two of them did everything together. They, they bought a car as teenagers. I mean, they were just close buds. They double dated together, went to high school together. They even enlisted in the army together, went to boot camp together. They went and fought on the front lines of the Korean War together. And one night, sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was sitting there thinking about the old days back in Brooklyn. And Ray was just listening to him, just letting him go on and on. And he's sitting there eating a chocolate bar. And suddenly, a live grenade came into that foxhole. And Ray looked at Brennan. And instantly, he smiled. He dropped his chocolate bar and threw himself on that live grenade. Instantly. It exploded. It killed Ray. But Brennan's life was spared. Now, Brennan was actually Ray's last name. But Brennan... His friend took it as his own. And years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. And they sat up late one night having tea. When Brennan asked her, he says, do you think Ray loved me? And Mrs. Brennan, she got up off the 
couch, she shook her finger in front of his face and shouted, what more could he have done for you? And it's at that moment that Brennan finally understood the love of Jesus Christ. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, does God, does God really love me? And then he imagined Mary, the mother of Jesus, pointing to her son. What more could he have done for you? Brennan also said this once, I love this quote, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. What I want most for you as Christians is to be trained in grace. But God's grace is learned in the battlefield, on the front lines of life. I wonder if this is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3, he says, you must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, when a soldier trains in the special forces, they're put under incredible pressure, placed under enormous physical and mental stress. It's intentional because it's designed to teach soldiers to trust their commander and to expose and help them with any weakness in the soldier that might undermine them in the heat of the battle. This is true of God's people. This is true in the church of Jesus Christ. This is something we see throughout scripture. God testing his people to strengthen them for the battle that is with the world. And consider Job. I don't like thinking about Job. It makes me nervous. But consider Job. God tested Job. He endured unthinkable hardships. But at the end, Job had an even greater revelation and understanding of who God is. Job was trained in God's grace. And then God tested Abraham. He endured years of waiting and had to be prepared to sacrifice the very thing that he had waited all his life for. But he went on to become the father of Israel, described as righteous because of faith. God tested David. He lived for fear of his life and he hid in caves and other places for years. But God used those hardships to train him to be one of the most successful kings in Israel's history. God's testing is meant to reveal strengths and weaknesses because the stronger you are, Christian, in your faith, in your understanding of grace, God's grace, the stronger than we are as a church, as a church family, the body of Christ. It was Paul that said this in Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. That's where that battle starts, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Training yourself means you read the word of God, not done with this legalistic attitude like, oh boy, here we go again. God wants me to read. But because God's grace is living in your life, Christian, and you want to better know your Savior the one that gave his life for you. Now, the word of God is the only offensive weapon listed in Ephesians 6. It says this, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Notice Paul starts with truth in verse 14. Truth is found where? In the word of God, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Positionally, if you haven't been coming here very long, you need to know this truth. Positionally, if you are a child of God by faith, you have the righteousness of God credited to your account. But our condition doesn't always match our position in Jesus Christ. How we live doesn't always match who he has made us to be in him. 
And in his grace, in his word, we are to train ourselves to live according to who he has made us to be, a new creation in Jesus Christ. The third piece of armor is having one's feet covered with the preparation of the gospel of peace, meaning we have a firm footing in life because of the peace first given to us in the gospel. Peace with God, peace with his people means we can stand our ground when attacked. Paul continues on in verse 16 of Ephesians. He says, above all, taking that shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, Paul is referring to a, a battle shield here. Meaning that when you're in the thick of battle, take up your shield of faith. It means you look up to God and realize that the battle doesn't belong to you. The battle belongs to him. And this protects you from the attacks of Satan. Every fiery dart that comes from the wicked one. You know, the Roman shields were made of wood covered with leather in order to make the shield able to hold up against those flaming arrows that would come at them. Satan's fiery darts are put out as we rely on God. And the helmet of salvation, a beautiful thought here. It means that when believers protect their thoughts, we, we do that by focusing on all that we have in Jesus Christ. We look to the cross. We look to his grace, knowing his love for us. It protects us from the foolish thinking that lets us fall. Notice, though, this helmet of salvation is just not automatically on us. We are to put on this helmet of salvation, not something we need to do in regard to our salvation to eternal life, but because we've already been saved from eternal condemnation. Remember the doctrine that we teach here, that there are three tenses, three aspects of salvation. Believers have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. Believers who walk or live in fellowship with God are being saved from the power of sin in their life. And when Christ returns, believers will be saved from what? The presence of sin by reflecting on the cross of Christ, we protect our thinking of what Christ has done for us, what he's doing for us right now, and what he will do for us in the future. We put on the helmet of salvation, thinking about Christ's eternal love for us now. It is to trust God's plan for our present life and for the future. Now, verse 17, it also instructs us to take up the sword of the Spirit defined as the Word of God. Now, immediately we think of Hebrews. We think of Hebrews 4.12, which says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, it's interesting when you read the Greek. There's a number of Greek words that are used for swords. But it's interesting to me that both the author of Hebrews and Paul use the word referring to the short two-edged sword used by Roman soldiers. Because believer, you are in a battle and Satan wants to destroy your family. You need to know that, that Satan absolutely wants to rip your family apart. Why do you think you get into marriage moments on the way to church or on Saturday nights? Why do you think that happens? Okay. Satan wants to destroy your growth in Christ, your, your hope in Christ, your testimony. Why do you think you're always tempted to blow it right when you're witnessing to someone? He wants to shake your confidence in Jesus. 
He wants to shake your confidence in the Lord's return. He wants to undermine your thought life. Satan wants to ruin your testimony for Jesus Christ. Because if he can get you trapped into habitual sin, living a defeated life, you aren't much of a witness for Jesus Christ, are you? Your enemy, as you go out of here, it's all around you. And if you want to stand, you better know God's word. You better know how to apply it. Because Paul, this is interesting, Paul didn't use the Greek word which refers to the written word of God here. He didn't refer to the written word of God. The Greek word actually refers to the spoken word, meaning the words of Scripture applied, applied when we face temptation. See, the Bible is not the sword of the Spirit here. The Bible is the armory in Ephesians 6. It's the armory. There are thousands of swords, and every one of them is meant to be used when we're tempted to sin. But, Christian, you better know the Bible, because to have the precise Scripture ready when needed, you need to know what's in that armory. And then, Christian, pray. Pray in the power of the Spirit. Pray for the other Christians in your church family. We should be in constant prayer. The Spirit prays for us. Romans 8, 26, the Spirit of God enables us to pray. Praying in the Spirit involves praying with a confidence in God's help as we pray in harmony with the will of God in our lives. Praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not a magical catchphrase like the name it and claim it charismatic nonsense. It means praying with confidence in God, confidence in His grace in our lives. But do not, Christian, do not misunderstand and do not underestimate the importance of prayer because our, our purpose, Christian, is to live in fellowship with God. You know, it's funny to watch new soldiers when they're trained to march on the parade ground, when they're just learning at, at the beginning to move as one. If you've watched new recruits, at first they, they can't keep step at all. Their timing is completely off. But by the end of basic training, they march in perfect unison past their commanding officer. The church needs to learn this unity. Please understand this, that I'm not referring to counterfeit or false unity created by an ecumenical spirit. And I'm not referring to a legalistic march. I'm talking about unity built on grace. On grace. Because Christians have learned to keep step with the word of God and they have their eyes on the commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be united in our purpose, to glorify Christ, to worship our God, to live for our God, to witness for our God, to live for the edification of the saints in our lives. Unity is what the enemy wants to destroy. The Lord Jesus, in his last recorded prayer on earth in John 17, his prayer was for us as his people so that we would be one. Notice just a few verses. Let's look at verse 11. It says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be what? One as we are. Isn't it amazing, but very important truth that unity in the body of Christ is meant to reflect the unity of the Godhead. Did you know that? Jesus says, protect them, Father, that they might be one, just as the Godhead is one. The unity of the Godhead is inherent in the word of God. Just go back one verse to verse 10. And all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. This is Jesus talking to the Father. Only God in the flesh could make this kind of claim with the Father that his disciples belong to the Father. 
And that is why he asked the father to keep them in verse 11, keep them through his name. Then skip down to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me. I love this verse. Who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying for all those who would believe in him through the teaching of the apostles. Glory to God. It melts my heart every single time I read this scripture to read about my Savior praying for us because it demonstrates his sovereignty. He knew he would die. He knew he would rise again. Jesus knew that he would send the Spirit of God, that his church would be born, and that the apostles of Christ would go out into all the worlds spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what did he pray for? that they may be one as the Father and Son are one, that we would be one in them. And Jesus compares the unity of his people with the unity he shares with his Father because the more we understand the attributes and the character of our God, the more we should strive for unity. It's a unity based on purpose, on love, on doctrine. This is not a unity at any price, but the gates of hell have a hard time arguing with a church united in purpose, united in love, united in doctrine. The gates of hell have a hard time with that. And I'm just asking you this, Christian, if Jesus Christ made his focus on his final prayer in life on this earth to have unity, shouldn't this be more of a focus in the church of Christ today? The more we know Christ, the more we should be drawn to one another. Verse 22, notice, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Christ is again praying for unity that is modeled and enabled by the Godhead, made possible of, because of who Christ is, made possible because of his truth in us, his righteousness in us, his peace in us. This is the reason, Christians, that there are times when you meet another believer and you feel like you've known them before you even ever met them. Because we share the divine nature of Jesus Christ living in us. What we're recognizing is we're recognizing Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 2, starting with verse 9. It says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power, complete in Christ. One more verse on this, 2 Peter 1, 4. Watch. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of what? The divine nature. See, what I'm telling you is it's because of this divine nature that the closer we are to Jesus Christ, the closer we are to one another. Husbands and wives, this works in marriages too. This really does. So you can't change the other person in your marriage, but you can work on your own walk with Jesus Christ. And therein lies the secret, the answers. Many of you have wondered for many years to how Angie Baby has survived all these years of being married to me. I'm teasing her, but I'm also being serious because we applied these, these principles in our marriage over 20 years ago. I'd like you to picture it as a, a cone or a triangle with God at the top and you and the other Christians at the base. 
At first, you stand apart, but as you begin to work on your own relationship with God, the closer you get to God in fellowship and living out your faith in Jesus Christ, you will find the closer you are to the other believers in your life. But also have you notice that if you're working on your relationship with Christ and other Christians in your life or not, what happens? You actually get further apart. You get farther apart. See, true unity is not found in ecumenical programs. Biblical unity is not built on compromise. It's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in his word. But Christians, to get closer to Christ in our relationship and the other Christians in our lives, if we get closer to Christ, we draw closer to God and the other Christians, and we meet each other in our deepest joy. This is why marriage life can be so good. This is why church life can be so good. And isn't this the teaching of the New Testament? Sure it is. This is the teaching of 1 John 1, verses 3 through 4, where John said, That which we have seen and heard declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. Written as an apostle, and truly our fellowship is with who? The Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that I hate lordship salvation because it makes everything a test of whether or not people are truly saved by faith. And I'm also telling you I hate the legalistic approach to the Christian life because it makes everything into a list of rules to be kept. But I love the grace-filled life. I love the grace-filled life, the thank you life, where you thank God constantly for what he's done because it, it teaches us to walk in fellowship with one another in Christ. And in this, we find joy. There should be joy, Christian. And back in John, Jesus tells us unity comes from God. But how many church fights, how many church splits have caused Christians to stay home on Sundays and have caused the testimony of Christ in our lives to be ruined? See, it's, it's not of God because our, through the church, the world is to know that we are loved by God. That's what Jesus said. He said that. Didn't he just say that? He said that. And he also said in verse 22 that the glory that the Father gave to him, he's now given to the apostles, and through them he's given it to us. Now, what is this glory? I chased this down for so much time this week, it, it really drove me nuts. But what is this glory? Well, it is hard to nail down with specific certainty as to the reference here, but we do know that the glory of, of Christ was the path of humility, service which led to the cross. Back in John 17, Jesus said this. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. He's facing the cross. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. See, his humility led to his glory on the cross, which is why we read in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And Christ also spoke of glory back in verse 5 of John 17 when he said this, Oh, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory that Christ had with the Father before the world was. This is the eternal glory of God consisting of who he is. This glory was given to Jesus when he took on his human nature. John 1.14 tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. 
This is the glory the apostles beheld, shining through the veil of his flesh. Christ has given believers the glory which the Father gave him, which is Christ in us. It's that divine nature of Jesus Christ living in us. See, unity in the church, it's, it's not easy, and it's not automatic. It'd be nice if it was automatic. It's not automatic. It comes through a commitment to God's truth. It comes as we draw closer to Jesus Christ. And it comes as we learn to be humble servants to Christ. Some of the greatest marriages I have seen is when a man and a woman truly become one in marriage. Committed to open communication, committed to sharing their souls, spending time together to have that deepest relationship possible. It's wonderful when it happens. But most people never have that type of marriage because they're not committed to working towards it in God's grace. And I'm going to say this, the same is true in the local church. The same is true in the church. Pastor Paul Knight, he's actually an acquaintance of mine. He's a pastor of, from Grand Forks, North Dakota. He was in Ethiopia, and he had a chance to meet the little girl his family had been sponsoring through Compassion International. His heart broke to learn that this girl and her mother lived, and they worked in a one-room home. This one-room home was also a bar, but this is where this little girl had to live. When Paul was there, the place slowly started to fill up with rowdy men. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Paul's guide and translator, he just took him by the arm and he said, we have to go now. And Paul looked back at this sponsored child of his, a 10-year-old girl, and asked for more time. But the crowd was getting louder and more rowdy, and his guide firmly said, no, it's not safe for you. You must leave now. And Paul started to move, but then he pointed to his sponsored child and said, but what about that girl? Will she be safe? Well, this is her home, the guide said. And as he moved to the street, Paul asked, but will she be safe? It's not really safe, was the response, but this is her home. Well, Paul was outraged by this. What does that mean? He asked that it's not really safe. What does that mean? And the guide said this, most likely everything you think it means. Paul was fighting back his tears. He said, what, what can she do? And gently grabbing his arm and the guide said, we teach the girls to do this. Scream and then run to the church. Because when you get to the church, you'll find love. And you're going to find safety. The church will shelter you. So when they feel threatened, when they feel vulnerable, they scream. They run to the church. I'm going to be blunt. I don't like the church in the West. I'm tired of the church in the West. I'm tired of what it's become. Very few run to the church in the United States and America in the West because of what the church has become. It's ridiculous. Nice cars outside, nice clothes inside, beautiful decorations, beautiful music. I love the music. I'm not knocking the music, guys. But there's very, very little unity based on Jesus Christ, and that grieves me. There's very little unity based on his truth, the truth of Jesus Christ from his word. To be honest, I wouldn't run towards the church in the West, most of them. I would run from the churches in the West because there's a lot of bad doctrine out there. And there's legalism out there. Leaders who manipulate people, I hate that. 
It becomes cultish in some circles. It's disgusting. But I still have faith in the local church. I still have faith in the local church. Let me tell you why. I can give you at least two reasons. One, because I can see in Scripture how powerful the church can be. It's powerful. And two, I see what God's doing here. I see how powerful the Word of God has been in your lives. Now, what we have here is not perfect. I see the problems, but I see unity. I see unity based on God's truth like I hardly ever see out there. And I see the family of God growing in grace, and that moves me. Growing in the scriptures, growing in unity towards Christ. And so all I'm asking from you, Christian, is this. Just continue. Continue to train yourself up in the word of God and grow in his grace. That's not too hard, is it? Because as you do this, you will help us all draw closer to each other, become trained up in God's amazing grace. And so we close with Paul's words where he said in Philippians 2.1, he said, therefore, if there's any consolation in Jesus Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.